I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is created on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nations and I pay my respect to their elders past and present. I extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples connected to each of the hundreds of countries around so-called Australia. I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Law, the podcast. I am Rose Inglis, founder of Rose Tinted Law and your host. RTL is a professional development platform for curious and open-minded legal professionals. This podcast is a space to have honest conversations about legal careers with people who are boldly carving out their unique place in our profession. I am so excited to share this next episode with you. In today's episode, I sit down with Hannah Ferguson, the 24-year-old founder and CEO of Cheek Media. Cheek Media is a news commentary platform that sits at the intersection of social, political and feminist news. Prior to this, Hannah studied law and was enjoying a really bright and fulfilling legal career as a union representative. When we sat down for this honest conversation, Hannah was just a couple of months into a very exciting new career chapter. At the end of 2022, she made the bold decision to quit her sensible and excellent role as a union rep and packed up her life and moved from Brisbane to Sydney. In February 2023, she was just a couple of months into going full-time at Cheek Media and in the depths of writing her first book. This is really the sweet spot of where I think career development is at its most exciting and messy when you're in the thick of things really just working it all out. In the first part of this honest conversation, Hannah shares with us all the different steps she has taken in her short but illustrious career to lead her to become founder and CEO of Cheek Media. We go right back to the beginning, from growing up in Orange in rural New South Wales to moving to Brisbane and studying law at the University of Queensland with a scholarship to the early stages of her legal career and all the various roles she did to get to where she is today. Hannah is very much a woman after my own heart who has always pursued alternative career options and used the early stages of her career to experiment in diverse roles and organisations from the not-for-profit sector to the DPP to a union. Hannah talks us through what she learned from each of these experiences and how they've all led to where she is today. In the second part of our conversation, we talk all things Cheek Media. We also have a really good conversation about privilege and influence and advocacy and what as white educated women we should speak out about and who we should listen to and why we should listen and changing our minds and getting it wrong and learning and growing. And she also tells us her exciting plans for the future, including a world exclusive. I hope you enjoy listening to this honest conversation and it helps open your eyes to the limitless possibilities as to where your legal career may take you.
This episode of Rose Tinted Law is proudly brought to you by Clarence. For more than 25 years, Clarence has built a reputation for the unique and sophisticated offices, ideally located in the legal precincts of Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. But what truly sets Clarence apart is their member services. To find out why over 500 legal practices call Clarence home, you can check out their extremely workable membership options at clarenceprofessionalgroup.com.au. Thank you for having me. You have done so much in your 24 years. <laughs> I really don't think that's I true. I don't even know where to begin. I think when I was 24, I had just finished a law arts degree and just starting a very regular like graduate job. And here you are founding a little media empire. Little. She's <laughs> tiny. She's tiny. But you also studied law first. Yes, I did. I so did. what prompted you to... Study law. Um, to be very, very honest, I grew up in Orange in regional New South Wales. It's about three hours west of Sydney, and I was definitely an absolute nerd in school, and I really prided myself on that sort of high achievement at the time. And I think that when I was looking at university, I really didn't, as much as I'm always like a very decisive person, I really didn't know what I wanted. Yeah. And I think that I was driven, unfortunately at the time, I think I was really driven by the narrative of what looks impressive. Yeah. And I think that it was that like, well, I got a high ATAR and I and I got in, so I have to do it and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I was really fortunate enough to get a scholarship to the University of Queensland to study law. So I think that played into it as well was the scholarship and the money because that allowed me to go to university straight away. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to. So I think that, to be, I, I was always really, really engaged in my legal studies in school and in English. And I think that I just took the path of wanting to really develop that critical analysis and critical thinking. And I was really interested in public prosecutions. And I sort of drove that narrative with, probably without really critically thinking about what I was truly interested in, but I'm still glad I did it. But at the time, I think it wasn't probably well thought out, is to be honest. But really, how well thought out our decisions when we we're like 18 finishing school and, and that's part of it is like I think that I was always that person that was like well I know what I want and like you know yeah. I think we have that mentality of like well you know you're 17 and getting drunk every weekend but you're still like well of course I know what I'm gonna want when I'm 50 years old like and you're just driven by this narrative that's going to change every year on year you know and I, I don't regret it but I think that it's I what it's come to be is that I think I could have done something different or changed earlier probably you didn't yeah you went to UQ yep you studied law, how did you go at uni? Terribly. (laughs) (laughs) I went from getting an extremely good ATAR and scholarship to getting to uni and I, I, to be honest, I wasn't a rule breaker at school. I was like a goody two shoes and then when I got to uni that all changed. Did you study straight law? Yeah. I started doing a double in journalism and then ironically now, given the media thing, I dropped the journalism part after the first year or first semester and just did straight law because I knew I didn't want to be at uni for very long and I couldn't handle the thought of being there for five and a half years. So I dropped back to straight law, finished the degree in four years with honours, but I never failed. But trust me when I say there were some classes I never attended and it was genuinely a miracle that I passed. (laughs) (laughs) Was your honours by a thesis? No, I actually, they, they got rid of the thesis component before I went through that final year. So it was just additional subjects and electives. Yeah, it was a bit different. Yeah. But the years before me had all done a thesis. So I didn't do that. You completed your law degree yep. in four years yep. with your honours degree. What did you do next? I then decided that I wanted to love learning again. because, And, and I just want to, I think this is important to note because just when we're talking about this, it's making me reminisce. Yes. I think a really pivotal part of not enjoying the degree was the culture 
of law school. It wasn't about the subject matter necessarily. I mean, I didn't really enjoy that either. Trust and equity was not my bestie. Um, But I think that really you've got a lot of similar people, a lot of high achievers from a very similar background, which is the private education. And a lot of them went to school together. And the Brisbane private school scene, a lot like Melbourne and Sydney, is just very elitist and very enclosed. And it really made me reflect on the composition of the legal profession, who rises, who succeeds, and who ends up in positions of power that make the rules. And I think that that is something that I'm really reflecting on now that I'm in my business, which is media and speaking to who makes up these institutions, is that it starts there. And when we have the legal profession made up of kids that really come from those upper middle class and upper class backgrounds, it says a lot. Mm. And I think the access and the privilege is really there. And I think that we don't talk about that enough is that Mm. there's no diversity. And that was actually really hard socially to break into because I'm not that person and I'm not from that background. And I really struggled while I was at uni Mm. with trying to enter that sphere. And in fact, I just opposed it. And because I didn't have the friendship circle, I didn't go to class. (laughs) And I think that that was actually a really vicious cycle. And I think that's like an important note. But basically at the end of the degree, I was like, I need to love learning again because I hadn't and I hadn't enjoyed the culture or the experience. And so I went back and did a year of a, it only took a year because I had my master, my honours already. I did a master of publishing, editing and writing because I think I'd not given credit to the creative part of myself and the part that just loved writing mm. and just loved applying critical thinking to dismantling those systems. How do we unpack that? How do we have creativity that sits alongside critical thinking and how can those skills be combined to make something even better? And so that was like a really great thing thing for myself that I did. That's such big stuff to already be so aware of and thinking about. All of that resonates with me, especially the passion for learning yeah. and creating for the sake of it and yeah. writing for the sake of it. Because I always did really enjoy that part of law school and being a lawyer, but there is no creativity. Yeah. And just doing those things because you like it and to create something better, I think is really, it's not something law school necessarily teaches us. Yeah. I always consider it to be like a mathematical humanity in that there's a logical process and there's a precedent and there's a history that determines where we're at. And so everything can be brought back to this sort of equation of this concept plus this case law equals this outcome. Yeah. And I think that it's it's very clear. There's obviously exceptions to that rule, but I think that it practically makes sense. As a writer, it taught me how to think and it taught yeah. me how to argue. Yeah. And I think that doing what I'm doing now, like the passion area and the, the way I reflect on my degree now is that it allowed me to understand the system in a way that I could validly critique it. And I really value that skill in that it I can. Skills to critique it exactly. Well. And it gave me a really informed view of the problems when we're looking at the history, you know, things like crime and a lot of our legislation but I think crime's a really easy example in the criminal law, is that it's a social construct. It's a product of changing community values. And I think that we can learn a lot from history, but I think that the law also fails to reflect on where we're at. Understanding that history allows you to understand what pieces are missing and where we're lagging. And so I really value the insight that I developed from and the skills I developed because it allowed me to critique it in really valid and informed ways and through a lens of experience. I mean, limited experience, given that it is just a law degree and there's so much more to it, but I, I don't underestimate or undermine those skills either. So did you go straight from high school, undergrad law, master's journalism? Did you take off any time or did you just go straight through? Didn't take off any time. So I started law when I was, I graduated, that's actually not very long ago. I graduated high school in 2016. I graduated my law degree in 2020. I graduated my master's in 2021. (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm 24 now and I've been out of uni. I've had my master's for a year. That's so impressive. Yeah. 
you knew all about the law. You had this passion for creative writing. Yeah. How did you reconcile those two upon graduating and finding yourself ready to go out into the inverted commas real world? Yeah, so I was really scared about that because I think that from my first week, I knew that I violently opposed traditional corporate firm culture. Some of my best friends work in traditional law firms um, and want to climb that ladder. And I think that is disgusting, frankly. I love them to death, but I couldn't do it for a day. And I knew that pretty much immediately. And I think for me, I wanted so desperately to find other pockets of law that could... I could work in the sphere, I could work in the profession, but I was doing something completely different. And so when I was at uni, I did pro bono work. And I did a semester at a community legal centre and I actually picked prisoner's legal service mm-hmm. and I wanted to do something that was really outside the square and that was literally giving advice to prisoners. And a lot of people will be listening to this like, what the hell, right? Like that would yeah. be something that a lot of people just, no, no way. Yeah. And it's because I really see the value in no matter who a person is, they have fundamental rights. And I think that it's so important that we apply that sort of logic and perspective to everyone. And it gave me a lot of insight. You know, I went to different prisons in Queensland, different correctional facilities and interviewed prisoners, helped them with parole applications. You know, I really experienced, you know, people that couldn't apply for parole on the basis that they couldn't read and write, not because they didn't deserve that, you know, and it's it's those sorts of things that gave me such insight and passion to do the work that I'm doing now, I think. And I'm not saying that like I really did much, but it was just such a confronting and honest experience that it made me realise like, oh, I really want to be on the front line doing different kind of work. I don't want to be sitting wondering when I'm going to get promoted to special counsel. Like that was just never going to be me. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I knew inherently. And so then I got a job and this is pretty counterintuitive, but I the only job that I could really get at the time was at the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions in Queensland. So that sits with in the Department of Justice and Attorney General. And I was a legal transcriber. So every day I would come into work and I would pick up a disca off the pile and I would transcribe a police interview, whether that be with a perpetrator, whether that be with a victim, whether it be a, an arrest warrant, a pretext call, like anything. And that was, to be frank, deeply traumatising, vicarious trauma. And that was just one of the most antisocial jobs anyone could ever have, yeah. putting on headphones and listening to the most awful aspects of humanity basically but it was so insightful to to how our justice system works and how the investigation process works and how we treat complainants and all of those sorts of things and it was really it really changed me to be honest Mm -hmm. and it was awful for my mental health and I did 18 months of that and yeah that's a long time to do a job like and I was 20 like I was listening to complainants as young as four and uh, the majority of, I feel like the majority of the, the interviews I listened to were with children and it was, you know, affected child witness of sexual crimes. And again, when you're looking at what I'm doing now, I think it all stems back to these experiences that really drove me here quite quickly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh my God, you're 24. Like, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, I've just, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm 80 sometimes. <laughs> like <laughs> Things you've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you given any like training or support? or around Uh, vicarious trauma? Yeah, look, I think it's something that's spoken about, but I think that it's not something that's socially accepted in these workplaces. Mm. And I think that what tends to happen is that you're sort of given the the brochure. You're given the pamphlet and it's mentioned at the tail end of a morning tea. And I'm I'm not here to undercut the workplace because I think they do excellent work and I think that if I'd sorted out the support was probably there but I think a lot of the time it's like a free telephone consult and it's not really ongoing and it's not really promoted it might be mentioned but I wouldn't say it's promoted and I think that what tends to happen culturally within these places and it's not any one person's fault but it's 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 very much 
ingrained in the system is that it's sort of a badge of honour to claim you're not affected. And I think that that's a huge issue. I think that it's sort of like this pride point and I'm sitting there feeling numb, you know, going to the toilet every hour to sit on the lid and go, I don't even feel like a person right now to be honest like it was really um like I couldn't and this seems like a simple thing but I was like coming home and my showers were getting longer and I was not able to watch anything above an M rating I was watching a lot of Pixar for that 18 months you know like I couldn't engage I was really withdrawn from a lot of the social aspects of my life and the like I'm passionate about news and current affairs and I really withdrew from that sort of stuff and I knew something was wrong but it took me a long time as well I think that it's I didn't realize how much it affected me and that's probably why I didn't seek help as well and I think we don't want to admit it yeah. I think that's a, that's a big barrier is ourselves yeah that's such a good one I that makes me reflect on I used to work on class action yeah. for a large plaintiff firm and I was taking witness statements for basically all throughout families interviewing everyone about an extremely traumatic event and I didn't realize at the time but it was called vicarious trauma. It was later on. Yeah. I learned that, oh, that's a thing called vicarious trauma. And I did have similar experiences to what you were describing. Yeah. You just feel very uh, kind of exhausted, depleted, uh, a bit fragile, and, like, you kind of need to debrief as well. Absolutely. Like, oh, I just, like, get drunk and, like, start talking about it. I'm like, why? I don't talk about my brother. That is exactly what I used to do. And that's also not fair to our friends. No. It's not. No. I'm queer if it's, like, yeah. interesting or relevant to yeah. you either. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. And it's like this thing that would sort of come out of you. Mm. And I also find that it's something that I only am coming to terms with years later. Mm. I think that I never acknowledge the impact. Yeah. And I think it's because we all sit there and want to internalise and bottle. And and, and, and and yeah, exactly. I can compartmentalise. Mm. I'm emotionally intelligent. I can do all this. And it's just, we're human. And mm. I think it's like really coming back to that. And we're growing. Yeah. So you did grow, you did evolve. Yeah. On from that role. Yeah. Then Um, Then I worked at the office of the health ombudsman. So it was obviously it's health regulation work. I was in the complaints intake and triage. So basically speaking with the public every single day about, and that was taking disclosures of sexual assault by health practitioners. So it went from one extreme to another. It went from listening and feeling like I was so disempowered. Like that was really hard was that at the DPP, I felt like I wasn't having an impact because I was listening to a disc, writing words, handing that off. And there was no, there was no impact. There was no outcome. I never knew what happened. It went to a jury. You know, mm. that was one hard part. This, then going to face to face, not face to face, but on the phone, handling letters, handling emails. But mostly, it was actually speaking with people on the phone as they disclose some of the worst moments of their life. You know, it might be that I've had, you know, I heard people who took their two-year-old to a hospital and they amputated the wrong leg. You know, like it's it's really, really life-altering stuff. And it was like. How long did that phone call take? What's your KPIs? You know, and that's really hard, you know, going from, well, you have to hit seven pages an hour transcribing to, well, how long was that phone call and could we have shortened that? And I'm just, I'm just so driven by the humanity and the emotion of the experience. And so I'm never going to be cut out for that work. Obviously, I'm a critical thinker and I know how to speak to people. So that's really why I was good at the jobs, but I was never cut out for that sort of measure. Yeah. And that really affected me too. Like it was, it was interesting work and it was admin heavy, but it required a lot of written skills in terms of getting complex health information and ensuring because that that process it went it would go to a decision maker an assessor an investigator so it needed to be really compact clear because if the complaint wasn't listed clearly it would never get to the end point so if you didn't take it in the first place it would never get there Mm. so it was a really important frontline role in a sense Mm. but again 
traumatizing in its own way. Look at me drawn to that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then I basically was like, I can't do this. And so then I went and worked in project management coordination for a charity. So I was basically the national volunteer coordinator for a not-for-profit Orange Sky, who basically, if you don't know them, they have vans that have showers and washing machines in them. And they go around to different locations so that people experiencing homelessness can get a shower and a free load of laundry done. So that work was basically helping coordinate two and a half thousand volunteers around the country. I mean, it was a lot of communications work and just people work. And that was really good work. Like, I loved that. And it's it's difficult because, you know, you're not going to eradicate homelessness. You're providing a really minimal service, but it's a service that really restores dignity. So that was like a beautiful thing, totally outside of the law. You know, there was there was. But I think that's what I needed. And then from there, I, I love how I'm saying all this, like my resume is just. I am a child. Um, but It's interesting though. Yeah, but I think that I needed to experience a bunch of different things to know what I wanted. And I think that the culture of it, like the culture that has sort of told people that you need to stay at different workplaces for a certain amount of time is dying. Because yeah, why? Would, I, I was just very much of the view that I knew that I could interview well. I knew that I had the skills. I knew that the right workplace would see that and then I'd get the job. So I was just willing to go and apply. So I did like then went and this is the final role before I've just basically become self-employed. <laughs> but the final role was as an industrial officer at the Electrical Trades Union. So basically a legal advocate and I would advocate in the Fair Work Commission and the Queensland Industrial Relations commission on behalf of members so that was I would run unfair dismissals general protections claims that was sending a lot of angry legal letters to employers and doing a lot of it was really I think what was so incredible about that sort of work is that young grad lawyers who go into traditional law firms are often just sort of spending five years training up to get into the advocacy but I was able to begin the advocacy immediately and I was going up against barristers and partners of law firms within a few months of being there and I had no experience of industrial relations I had no experience of employment law I didn't even take it as an elective at uni I had no idea but what happened was I went in and interviewed and just like fell in love with the people and they liked me too apparently and it was really much about a values alignment they were really all about wanting someone who they could train up and they saw me as having the potential and that was just a wonderful thing so that I could communicate with members and this is not like a traditional client at a law firm you know these are a lot of the time just middle-aged guys unionists I mean it's not just men obviously but I think that's the predominantly who I was working with is a male-dominated industry it's a male-dominated workplace and that was a really different spin and having that really human element of talking to people that have no understanding of the law about their rights and expressing what can be done and then going and advocating for them and being the person that got to be there from the start to the end is a really powerful thing a lot of my friends who work in traditional law firms haven't really had that. You know, they mm. it takes a little while to be able to work up to the advocacy and they brief out a lot. That is a very good benefit, like the learning opportunities that you can get when you are outside a traditional law firm, which is super hierarchical. Yeah. That you can flex your skills. Yes. You have so much more opportunity for growth. Yeah. And sometimes the structures are a lot more flat. Yes. And it's just more about having that initiative, that gumption, that ability to think on your feet, learn quickly, learn by doing. I've always had to have that in all types of um, jobs, which has all been outside of big law. I am not someone who is going to work 12-hour days. 
I'm not interested. I'm always someone who's going to have multiple things on the go. I always want to be trying new things. I I, I like my life yeah. and no dollar value is going to limit that for me. And I was working four days a week, literally as a 23-year-old in the trade union movement, because they value having flexible work arrangements and they allow you to try different was things. Four days, four days or four days over five days? Four days, four days. Yeah, no. And so it was just like, I think that was such a different experience for me. And I'm, I'm actually really still sad that I've left that. Obviously, like I've changed chosen my own company instead, which is so amazing that I can do that at this point. But it really was a wonderful workplace and I've never met or worked with better people. And so like, it's actually a bit of a tragedy that I had to leave. Yeah. Were you ever tempted to do PLT? No. And so, so when I was at uni, I knew that I, I, I really gut instinct knew that I didn't want to. And I couldn't quite, like, I, I, I sort of thought about it in the sense of, and again, I think it's because when I was at, in school, I was sort of thoughtful, like, oh, I wanted to do law because it was impressive. And I think that when I was coming to the end of my degree, I thought, I'm not going to do that as an accolade. I'm not going to do that because I need to impress someone. I'm not going to spend 10 grand to get something that I'm not interested in. I don't want to do six months of study and something I'm going to hate. Yeah. And I thought, get the master's, branch outside, look for other work. And I knew that I could do it. I need to work for it in a different way. I think that if I had done PLT, I would have kind of confined myself to believing that I only could do law. And I think that it was a really active choice not to do that for me. You have such a strong sense of self. Where does this come from? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That confidence, sometimes it takes people years to get or it's taken me a long time to you know, sometimes to get even admit to myself Mm. some of the things you've shared today. So where does that come from? I think that I really like myself Mm. and I really trust myself. And I think that's what it's about. I, there are obviously moments when I sort of, and and to be fair, I polarize between some days I really hate myself and I'm like shaming myself, but all always, no matter what those days say and what, no matter what that inner critic says, if you said to me, Hey, you could just switch out with Jennifer Aniston right now. I would say no way. Like I've never, ever, ever wanted to trade places. I have never, ever, ever wanted to be anyone but me. And not in a conceited or egotistical way, just in a way that I really enjoy being inside my own head and being who I am. And I just think that I've always enjoyed the journey. It's really, I think that for a lot of like my younger self, it was so about the outcome and the goal. And the best part is the work for me. Like I've just always enjoyed being inside my own head and getting there. I just really pride myself on being honest and authentic and transparent and really trying to live by the values that I expect of myself. And I do have high expectations of myself. And I'm not saying it's like great every day. I really do have a lot of negative self-talk and all the usual things, but it doesn't change the fact that I I can have fear and I can have discomfort and I can have doubts, but I know I won't fail. And I think that what's really important is that I allow the conflict to sit with each other. I think that like the best way to live is to have that discomfort, but how do we allow it to sit beside the confidence? How do we allow them to exist peacefully with each other? Because it's always going to be there. Yeah. So how can it how can it just sort of be healthy mm. and not 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 cancel the other out? Mm. I think that's really important. You need to have the doubt and you need to have the confidence, but you need to allow them to sit there and exist, coexist. What do you do on a daily basis to kind of make sure that they are sitting in the harmoniously together and one's not yeah you know they they don't they like I it's a a constant work in progress and I think that over the last 12 months especially it's been a huge move because 12 months ago I started regularly seeing a psychologist and that was a huge one game changer game changer 
game changer. And because as we all do, some significant, you know, childhood trauma and family stuff. And I think that I really denied the need for a really long time. And then when I sort of had a, like a bad spell for about a month at the start of last year, one of my best friends said to me, like, you need to see someone. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, it's not shameful. And I think that as much as it's becoming normalised, people really struggle to book the appointment. You can say it's normal to go to therapy, but there is still that sort of inner judgement. And I think that when I admitted that to myself and said, like, I need to work through this stuff because if I want to be the person I want to be, I can't just ignore that compartmentalized bottle. It has to it has to come up and I have to work through it and it has to be uncomfortable. I think one of the hardest parts about therapy as well that no one talks about and it's really something that's like only sort of come good for me in the last couple of months is when you're working through all that stuff you do feel like an open wound. Yeah. So everything that's happening that's still good in your life when little things that go bad you are working through stuff so it's all at the surface. Yes. And so when new things pop up that are obstacles it can feel really like salt in the wound, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just about being aware and about I'm really trying to work on at the moment I always see it as like you know how you have the devil and the angel on your shoulder I really think there's more people than that involved I think there's more versions of yourself that are having a bit of a fight around the table and I think it's about knowing not to judge yourself for reacting and for things you've done in the past I think the biggest piece is not shaming the things you did when it was hard and when you were 15 and you know I can I can live my life now without that regret and shame and I think it's about if I want to be the best version I have to work through and forgive and move and mature and I think that's like a huge thing is that just admitting it and acknowledging it and if I want to succeed career-wise I need to have all of these parts exist again you need to like bring it all to the forefront you can't just push career and professional life and suffocate everything else it's never going to work and it's never going to fulfill not going to be sustainable. No. It sounded like you found your groove at the electrical trade union. Yeah. But then (laughs) (laughs) the best kind of nightmare. So (laughs) are you a legal professional looking for the perfect space to meet with clients, have a beautiful space to work in uninterrupted and have access to a range of services that will help set you apart from the rest? then our sponsor, Clarence Workplaces, is for you. Clarence is well known for their unique and sophisticated offices, ideally located in the legal precincts of Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. But what truly sets Clarence apart is their member services. Their on-site member services teams are dedicated to help build and grow your business, from welcoming you and your clients to supporting your business operations through IT, marketing and paralegal services. The Clarence team can assist you where and when you need it, helping you focus on what you're good at. To find out more about the extremely workable membership options, ranging from serviced offices to co-working spaces and meeting rooms and virtual offices, head to clarenceprofessionalgroup.com.au. Yeah, so Cheek Media Co, Co Company. So I just say Cheek if I'm referring to it because it's easy. Cheek is like the best way to explain it is it's like a news commentary platform. It's progressive, it's feminist, and it sort of is discussing topics that sit at the intersection of social, political, and feminist issues. So I'm not claiming to be breaking the news. I'm not claiming to be objective. I'm providing a balance to Murdoch Media. I am providing sharp, political, progressive analysis of the issues that are affecting people in Australian society. Fully independent, mostly it's social first. So follow on Instagram, it's cheekmedia.co. Is it primarily on Instagram? Yeah. So, and honestly, that wasn't the intention, mm. but my God, it went that way. Like it was out of my hands and I was like, oh, go for it. You know, like I'm not going to complain. So it's just really, it's grown so fast. Like I think that the growth I measured in the last 12 months has been 480% in follower growth. Ooh. So it's going really well. <laughs> like 
I think a lot of people will say, oh, I just never expected that this could become this. And I think the thing is, is that I wouldn't have started if I didn't think it had feet, yeah. if I didn't think it had legs. And so I'm not going to sit here and say like, I never in my wildest dreams because I created it for people like younger me. Yeah. Because it's something that I would have really benefited from as a younger person. And I'm not saying it's for young people because actually our following over 60 is huge. Yeah. There's a lot of progressive people that feel unheard and unrepresented in media. Yeah. And I think that essentially, so it's been two years now since we started it. And and the timing was unintentional but perfect because we started Cheek in November of 2020. Uh, so I founded it with my two co-founders, Kristen and Catherine. It's just me now, but Kristen and Catherine were with me up until October last year. So now it's just me and I've just in the last month resigned, moved to Sydney from Brisbane and I've taken it full time. Oh, um, it's really, it's really exciting. It's all so new. Yeah. And, and when we founded it, it was really a response to the fact that there was a huge fall in youth media. There, yeah. You know, BuzzFeed had died during the pandemic. And I just, we felt like junkie pedestrian weren't really representing young people. Mm. They haven't really since the early 2000s in any way that's beneficial or takes the views of young people seriously. It's entertainment journalism without substance. And we thought we could do both. And I think that was a huge piece. And it's just sort of transformed because I think at first we were sort of aiming to do more sex, work, relationship stuff. But in the lead up, just think about what happened in 2021. That was really the breaking of Me Too in Australia. From the allegations leveled against Christian Porter to Grace Tames Australian of the Year to Brittany Higgins coming forward. The momentum that built throughout 2021 was just this recipe for... And I think this is really important to note as well. I really struggle with my job benefiting from hardship in a sense. So our company has grown because of the Morrison government and its effects, because yeah. of the Me Too movement and its effects. And I think that's a really hard thing that I find to reconcile personally because... We interest to have. Exactly, because it means that when there's bad things happening, that's actually... The, the highest growth periods for Cheek, which is a real struggle. But I know it's not because I'm commodifying pain, but I'm trying to speak truth and provide and articulate thoughts that people aren't able to express themselves in those times. Yeah. So I think it's beneficial and effective and I believe in it, but it's still hard. Mm. It's still hard to know, like, and we talked about this before, like in the lead up to the election, that was our basically biggest period of growth and it was because every day I could just slam Scott Morrison publicly and people were like preach sister you know and just share 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 and so what ended up happening was there was this just this like sort of thing where I was like I want this man gone and I want to have a hand in that right but also what happens if he gets voted out then what am I doing and it's not because oh suddenly politics is perfect but it, it also meant that we could expand in ways that I hadn't thought about before it meant that I could stop and analyzing what he was saying at every press conference and start talking about other feminist issues outside yeah. of Scott Morrison, you know, and that was magical too. But at the time I wasn't sure what to do with myself. Like it was a, it was a real crossroads for Cheek. And so it's been a journey, hate the J word, but. Um, <laughs> it just works though sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> it's, yeah, look, it's grown from, we had, you know, a hundred followers when we launched in November of 2020 and last check, it's about 65,000 at the moment. Yeah. And it's got a subscriber base and I've just signed a book deal. I'm handing in a book next month that will be published in October, hopefully. So Congratulations. it's massive. It's... What's the book about? <laughs> I can, but I haven't only because it's like a slight piece of mystery that I want in my life. Okay. But it's, 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 it's not a memoir. People keep asking that. Jesus. I, I, that's what I mean. No. And, and with all due respect, when everyone, everyone says that, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I woke up 
born, I was here. And, like, I know I've been talking about it, but, like, it's not what I want to write about. Because you've just started Cheek. Yeah, exactly. I think the thing to think about, if you want to think about the book, is what does Cheek do well? It's about that. It's yeah. that in a book. It's expanded long-form Cheek. So don't worry. If you follow Cheek, I'm hoping you'll like it. We'll love it. We'll love everything that you do. You touched on something really interesting that I think about a lot, and that's how we use our privilege and influence. Yes. I am starting to find my voice with these things. I have a huge amount of privilege. I think by virtue of just being in the legal profession, Mm -hmm. we have a huge amount of privilege in society. Yep. I have a small amount of influence. You've got a huge amount of privilege and a huge amount of influence. Awful. (laughs) How do you think about that and how does that inform how you show up and what you talk about and what you do? It obviously creates a really large responsibility and it's a lot of pressure in that I never, ever, ever post or publicise any view without ensuring that I've done my due due diligence, I've done my research and that I really am set on the position that I've taken. In saying that, I think that one of the most crucial elements of this, of having that privilege and of having that influence, is that I cannot be someone who doubles down in the face of feedback and criticism. And I think that one of the most common errors in the media and with public figures of any kind is their inability to acknowledge wrongdoing, to acknowledge mistakes and to be flexible in their thinking, be malleable in their position. And I think that we've created this culture of seeing ourselves as experts on everything all the time and that if we're not it's a exactly and that if we're not it's a flaw in our character and I think the real flaw in our character is an inability to admit we've got it wrong and I think that that is something that isn't spoken about enough and it's something that obviously I need to take that responsibility and think before I post always but when presented with an alternate I need to be able to openly say I made a mistake can you share with us an example of when that's happened yes yeah 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 and and I'm fortunate enough that there's not been a any big issues but also there will be yeah and I think it's about getting really comfortable with that discomfort and expecting because you can't be perfect and I'm a person I'm one person I think that is something like because when you have an argument and you have an opinion it's not just a few lines it's not a headline and it's not just a TikTok yeah it's not something small yeah it's actually growth yes learning yes changing your mind yeah you know it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's yeah. dialogue. Yeah. It's listening to people. It's talking to people. It's other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. I think that can be such a trap with social media yep. as well. Absolutely. And, and maybe why there's a lot of snobbery towards it as well. Totally. From the establishment. The elite. The elite. Yeah. But I, and yeah. I, but I think that part of that also is that we've underestimated the ability for that to be an avenue of learning and education. And so we've made it, um, we've dismissed it. It's, it's, it's kind of like people who say listening to audiobooks aren't really reading. Mm. It's like, one, that's ableist, but two, it's undermining that, you know, taking content in a different way is less than. And not that it's the same, because I think that's like, obviously, ableism is different, but I think that we're judging people on the basis of how they consume. And that's not right, because this is how we get to this point where the opinions of young people are undermined on the basis of age, when actually we could be finding new ways to deliver news and opinion and information like TikTok you know people are learning so much from these platforms and yes they needed to be they need to be moderated and checked and the sources need to be you know like it it needs to be filtered in a sense but the dinosaurs who believe in these elite methods will die out on the basis that they cannot 
update their software <laughs> to reach, you know, meet people where they're at. Yeah. A classic example, and this is something that not everyone will agree with, but it's still something that I need to be reflexive and considerate of. A good example of a mistake is that, and just trigger warning, this is like pretty co- confrontational, but recently, obviously there's been a lot in the media recently about Andrew Tate. If you don't know him, don't Google him, but he's a pretty vitriolic. I would say he's the dying breaths of the patriarchy and misogyny, and he is someone who reaches young boys and tries to indoctrinate really oppressive ideals about women. And I wrote a post about audio recordings that had come out. So he's sort of being charged at the moment in the process of being charged with sex trafficking. There's been multiple women who've come out and made formal complaints of rape. And one of the voice notes that has been supplied by one of the women who've accused him within the audio um, recording, he says, I love raping you. And that's really confrontational. And that quote was everywhere in the media. And I made a set of tiles writing about this and I put the headline of the tiles as that quote. And the trigger warning that I put on the content was much smaller than that quote. It was tiny and it was above the quote. So if you were reading from the top, yes, but you can't avoid it. Like I acknowledge that that's the first thing your eyes were drawn to. And to be fair, it was thoughtless. It wasn't that I intended to upset people, but I wanted to be, I clearly wanted to be sort of like, I wanted that to be the centre of attention. I wanted people to read it and I wanted it to get attention. And I didn't consider the impact of that. So it was thoughtless behaviour. And when I posted it, I put my phone down for 15 minutes. I picked it back up and there was a lot of comments of people saying that that was a really bad decision. And I immediately deleted the tiles and then I made a new first slide that had just a full trigger warning detailing what the post was going to include and then I reposted it and made the fonts all different and bigger and blah 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 and I reposted and genuinely the the rhetoric of the comment section was that was a mistake but the way that you've updated that is like really respectful and thank you for doing that like there was genuinely such minimal backlash I think that some people would have seen it and been like oh but and doubled down and I think that I saw that and thought that's causing harm unnecessarily and the least I can do is just it's not about likes and clicks it's about mitigating harm and ensuring that Anyone who can engage should, not that everyone should. And my post doesn't deserve more attention than other people's feelings. I think it was just about reacting to that and and responding as quickly as possible and as thoughtfully as possible. Were your followers forgiving? Yes. And, I mean, some of them, and completely fair, were just like, that's not on, don't do that again. Fair. That's fair. I think what's hard is that, you know, I, for a long time, I, and this is not an excuse. It's just that a long time, for a long time, I was writing these posts in like 20 minutes, half an hour mm. because I was doing them on my lunch break or, mm. you know, at, at the gym on my phone. And so I never gave myself the time or the thought. And so it was thoughtless behavior because it was just like in a break. That doesn't change the fact that mm. it caused harm. And me saying that I don't have the resources doesn't excuse my ability to follow it up and fix it as much as it was just, it was just inconsiderate. I need to take ownership. And if I want people to respect and if I want people to subscribe to me and value my contribution, yeah. I need to be considerate of their needs and their feedback. And that's yeah, it. It's really interesting and it's hard when you are really pushing yourself and you're really pushing the narrative and finding your, you know, developing your own opinions and your own bent. When you're not just talking about like really mainstream stuff and figuring out like, like let's talk about this and some topics come a lot easier yeah. than others. Yeah. And especially if it's a topic that you might not have firsthand knowledge yes. about. If you're speaking about someone who or a group of people yep. who you don't have direct involvement with, but you've got your privilege, you've got your influence and you are interested and you want to contribute yes. to help educate people. That's hard. Mm. It is a process of just learning and it's not 
trial by error. You don't want to make the wrong decision. Of course, you want to do do the right thing. And especially when you are doing something in a way that no one else is really doing it like you. So, and I think yeah. that the perfect example of this is like the voice referendum that's coming up. Mm-hmm. It's really important to note that I'm a white woman with, you know, tertiary educated white woman with a lot of privilege, as we've spoken about. And it's not my place to have an opinion on a lot of topics. It's not. And Cheek is driven by opinion. So a lot of the time I am gravitating towards things that I can speak to. That's problematic in itself because that's not intersectional feminism. So I think there's a a broader conversation to be had about the content I make and that it's skewed towards my own experience and my own bias. I'm trying to be as honest as I can about that. And the thing for me is, is that what I would like to see Cheek do in the near future is that I have the revenue and income streams to be able to pay people to write, pay them more than they, you Know, more than the average, much more, because I think that's another conversation to be had about how much people are paid for the value they bring. Yeah. I want to be paying diverse voices to write for the platform so that we're getting experiences outside of mine, which is a limited privileged experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing because I'm not going to speak to a lot of issues without that lived experience Mm -hmm. and without that insight or contribution. And I want those people to be paid fairly. The other piece is that when it comes to things like the voice referendum, a lot of people, and this concerns me a lot, a lot of people, cheap followers will say, and this was the same with the federal election, they'll just ask me how I'm voting. (laughs) And I have a huge problem with that. And I really respond, not aggressively, but I like to say, like, this is not the point of Cheek yeah. because Cheek is still a media platform. It's commentary, sure, and it's my opinion, and I'm pretty I'm pretty direct and hard-hitting with that. I don't shy away from an opinion, but I think that the entire purpose of Cheek is still to not to have people adopt my perspective, but to help them navigate their own political compass. Where do you sit in relation to this? Jump off it. Use it as a bouncing board. Use it as an opportunity to have a conversation with a loved one. It's not about me dictating your views to you. That's against the point. And so when at the election last year, people were coming to me and saying, how are you voting? I'm saying, I don't live in your electorate. It's completely different. It's dependent on your electorate. Who are the candidates? What are their policies? I'm trying to get you to go out and do the research yourself and give you the skills and the and the tools, mm. right? With the referendum, I am a white woman. I am telling no one how to vote. It is yeah. not my place. It is not my position. That's baseline. The other thing is, is that it's really hard to write on because there is a lot of nuanced opinion in both the yes and no campaigns about why. I'm not here to elevate Peter Dutton's no perspective. That's not the point. I am here only to say, here are the respective positions of different First Nations voices. I don't give a shit about what white women and white men think about this. I think that this is a great, as much as we're all voting, sure, as a voter myself, it is my role to, as actively as I can, engage and educate myself with the views of both parties and then take that to the booth. From my perspective for Cheek, I would really like to get some different people speaking about it on the platform. But for now, at least in the lead up, it's just about me taking the information that's being provided and educating myself and remaining aware, whether that be by buying the books, you know, going to the Invasion Day rally and listening to why people are saying no, is the issue that they believe that these sort of groups of First Nations people that oppose the voice, whether that be that they believe it's ceding sovereignty, whether they, they believe that that is that it should be treaty before voice, you know, why? How can the voice be developed to be more robust to meet these needs, you know? Mm -hmm. Is the government, is it just a a tokenistic arm, you know? I don't know and I need to hear it and I also need to hear why we should be voting yes. I don't know how I'm voting. I have an inkling but it's going to be about engaging with the content up until the vote and really trying to remain level-headed, continue to be educated and continue to have conversations with people in my life about it because I don't care what Peter Dutton thinks but I do care about the relevant people and who it affects. I think it's so important, isn't it, to do the work. 
yeah. and think about our place at the table and what we're doing and how we can amplify those voices and whose voices we even listen to as well. Yes. A lot of it is coming down to the fact that there's a lot of, there's a lot of like assumptions about how to do the work and no one's really doing it. I don't know. I, I, that sounds really harsh, but I think that people talk a lot of game about what they're doing. They yeah, and that's 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 uh, <laughs> that's not the answer, you know. Like, and I think that a lot of and we were talking about this earlier. Like, so many people will say, like, you're my only news source. That's concerning to me. Yeah. I am so harsh, you know, and I am so narrow in what I speak about. And I'm honest about that. I'm not your only news source and I shouldn't be. And that's why I'm constantly saying, you know, read The Guardian, follow The Daily Oz, listen to The Briefing. You know, like yes. there's so many sources that are viable and quality. And yes, I, I want Cheek not to be your only news source, but I want you to look at Cheek and say, I don't understand what she's talking about. I'm going to go find where that joke is from or go and find the post by The Daily Oz and then read my opinion about it. You know, yes. look at it as a pipeline, a really healthy pipeline that's got robust it's got legs and it's got a system and it's got multiple sources and I think that when it comes to doing the work a lot of people are willing to say that you know they attended a protest once three years ago the Black Lives Matter protest that's just not it anymore you know you can't be sharing an infographic on January 26 and considering your work done that's not how it works privilege doesn't work like that and sharing something so that everyone sees your view isn't the same as actually making a tangible effort to make change I think that is such a common misconception who are you donating to and I'm not saying everyone has the capacity to donate, but who are you marching for? How often do you attend protests? What books are you buying and reading? What content are you consuming? Are you subscribing to that content? Are you paying for it? Are you going and watching seminars and listening to lectures? And, and how are you showing up in ways that are outside that infographic and that share once a year? That is so important to actually reflect on. And I think that we're really, really bad at sitting with shame Ooh, and yeah. sitting with... Listen to read Indigenous feminists. Yeah, they've got a lot to say about white women. Yeah, huge, <laughs> huge recommend is yeah. um, talking up to the white woman. That is the next thing to do on my. Yeah, have you read it? Yes, it's great. Um, and you were saying another day in the colony. Another day in the colony. Yep. by Chelsea Waterhouse. Yes. If you ever ask me to recommend a book, yep. anyone. That is always what I will recommend to you, Another Day in the Colony. Great. It's on my list. I saw her speak last year at the All About Women Festival at the Opera House. It was brilliant. Brilliant. I I saw her speak at the Wheeler Centre. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did my roast thing. I read the book. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Follow her on all platforms. But it's good because she makes you sit in your privilege. Yeah. And, yeah, I think it's just hard, but it's necessary. I would also, uh, the other one I'd recommend for First Nations perspective, and, and it's, I would say that, you know, if you're not used to sort of more dense nonfiction, try Amy Tunig's memoir, Tell Me Again. Ooh. Really good one. Um, came out at the end of last year. She is brilliant. So I would say everyone read that. Yeah. And I, again, I think it's just about like, how are we engaging in meaningful ways with experiences outside of our own? You know, when we're voting, I'm not voting on behalf of me and my rights. I'm, I'm always trying to vote on behalf of someone that is less privileged than me. And how can we consider like everything that sits in our power? How are we thinking about others outside of ourselves? And I think that that's a lot of the time, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around voters in the lead up to elections, like, oh, you know, I vote liberal for the economy. Do you need the tax cut? Because someone else needs, you know, Centrelink payments. And I think that that's a bit more fucking important. Sorry. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that we need to just be, for a single second, bringing that compassion beyond ourselves and our immediate family and really trying to sit with the lived experience of another person and that, you know, you don't have to make decisions solely with yourself in mind. And I think that's just like this wildly radical concept. It's crazy how how little people think about that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm, again, also, I am not the beacon of this. I fail 
all the time. I'm going to continue to fail. I'm not intersexual enough. I'm not doing enough. I wish I was doing more. I think it's like, let's be honest about it. You yeah. don't, we don't need to be defensive. And yeah. I think that, you know, the first step is to say, is to say, you know, I could be doing more and then think about how yeah. and just do one thing. Yeah. One donation, book, buy one book, read one article, watch one movie that's outside yeah. your scope. It's not that hard. Yeah. Yeah. You are so early on in Cheek's history, I think. I am so excited for you. What is next for Hannah? What is next for Cheek? Oh my God, I don't know. I mean, I just... separate, I the same thing. That's actually a really big struggle point. Yeah. Um, I, and I think like a lot of people who run their own business probably feel like that is like, how do you create something that will, one, is distinguishable from your own self and ha that will live on after you. Like I don't want, I feel like at the moment Cheek is so dependent on me injecting my own personality and identity into what it is and that people are connecting with Cheek because of me, because they know I'm doing it alone and because they knew, you know, us as a group and they knew what we were doing and like they really connect with the personality piece. Mm. And that is such, such a compliment, obviously, um, because people are just like, people are really really care about my success and that is a beautiful thing very emotional it makes me um and I know that that's you know why people buy my book they might hate it but they'll buy it because they believe in me and that's so wonderful I mean I feel it I really feel it but at the same time I'm trying to build something that outlives me and that competes with Murdoch and that can't just sit with me posting about what I'm doing that day and my fit of the day you know like it can't be like that and so it's about creating a sustainable thing with its own beating heart and it's about you know like I've we've done three podcasts two limited series and they've all they're all off at the moment so I'm about to do season two of full credits of the boys which is basically a podcast that's having really intimate conversations with men me myself with one other man it's always one-on-one -on -one, and the idea is to model healthy conversations with men about topics like masculinity mental health rape culture healthy relationships one really struck stuck out to me it was about um family joe williams yeah, yeah. so beautiful yes it is really beautiful and i think that it's so interesting that we hold i think that in the feminist progressive space there is this ideal especially from some of the older feminists I would say that um there's this sort of hatred of men and, and I get it you know if you're a survivor of sexual violence or domestic abuse there you know a, a deep mistrust of men is fair enough I'm not going to argue with that but I think that what success in this movement looks like to me is how do we bring men into the conversation mm. how do we make change by involving everyone and asking healthy questions and having healthy discussions and I think a lot of that sits with when we're presented with as white women when we're presented with First Nations women saying you're not doing enough you're not blah 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 that makes us uncomfortable a lot of the time, mm. you know, because we're being called out. Mm. How do men feel when we're calling them out? And I'm not mm. saying it's exactly the same, but I'm saying like we are not really communicating always what we'd like men to be doing and I think that Me Too has seen a really a, a rise in solidarity between women and I think that men have just the reaction's been poor obviously like the witch hunt ideas and the not all men and blah 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 but I'm interested personally in the piece of how we bring the conversation back around mm -hmm. and I think that we've ridden the wave and now it's like how do we make tangible change that actually improves everyone's lives because as much as women are oppressed under patriarchy men are also harmed by it mm -hmm. and I think there's like loads of conversations to have in that space I think like that's one of the pieces of cheek that I'm really focused on is like how do I make this not a women dominated space and an echo chamber that's a big piece for me and I'm really motivated by that because like that's a hill I will die on yeah um, and that's a big gap mm. that's a big that, is, that exists. And I'm a woman. I don't know what men are interested in. I don't I don't always know how to speak to men or bring them into the conversation, but how do I make this a space they feel welcome without watering down what I'm saying is another mm -hmm. question. Like, 
the book hopes to do that in a way, like that's part of what I'm writing about. I would like to be writing more books. There's sort of a series in the works and that's not just me authoring them, but like other people. That's something I'm working on more as a publisher than a writer, which is really cool. I actually haven't announced that anywhere yet. So. Oh, world exclusive. I know. Look at us. Crazy. Um, Yeah. And I think that like, I'd love to be expanding more into video content. I'd love to be doing more website and and more social stuff outside of Instagram. But at the moment it's growth, growth, growth. Mm. How can I reach people? How can I impact people? And how can I cultivate a really robust community that can have healthy conversations? Mm. That's really the the solid aim always. Do you have any advice for others? Anyone at law school thinking, gosh, she's so cool. How do I do that? uh, I would like to firstly say she's not cool. Um, (laughs) I think that you often feel very lost at that time because nothing really makes sense at uni and it's just an extension of school and it's really gruelling and there's no routine and I I really lacked self-discipline and um, motivation at that time and I didn't know what I wanted from life or myself Mm. at that time. I knew who I was. I've always had a very strong sense of self but I didn't didn't know what the end goal was and I didn't know... I think that I was so focused on the ultimate achievements as opposed to really enjoying the growth. And I just wanted to try a bunch of different stuff. And that's why I did like the pro bono work. And that's why I just took a bunch of different jobs. Not everyone has that privilege, obviously. We are so obsessed with confining ourselves to just climbing the ladder instead of moving diagonally. Mm. And I would just say, try something new. It's not going to completely take you outside of your lane. It's not going to completely redefine your life. You can swing back in if it's not working. And I know I say that as a single woman with no debt, no kids, no dogs. Yeah. I can just get up and move. But I think but that... the time of your life when you do have that exactly. ability to I, take those risks. I think it's just about trusting yourself and trusting the process and that everything, like, you know, I hate it, like everything happens for a reason. But like, I feel like every experience that I've ever had has led to this and it feels right and I think that just going with something and trusting yourself is just so huge and like again I know that it comes with a lot of privilege and I know that I'm very lucky to be here but I also just think that like gut instinct learn to like yourself learn to have the conversation with yourself because it's the longest relationship you'll ever have just really enjoying the process is so important because you can't just you can't depend on the achievement for happiness because it'll never bring it um just try something new such a beautiful note to end. Oh, Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. I hope you loved this episode as much as I did. Hannah has had such a bright and exciting career so far and her future looks even more so. I so look forward to watching her grow from strength to strength and reading her books when they eventually come out. Now, as you can tell, I love working with early career legal professionals. My whole reason for creating RTL is to help others grow with confidence and purpose. And part of how I deliver on that mission is through this very podcast, sharing honest conversations with people who are boldly carving out their unique career paths and asking for their advice and candor so others may benefit from their experiences. The other way I can help others grow with confidence and purpose is to offer one-on-one career coaching. Now, you may be considering a move overseas or into a different part of the legal ecosystem, for example, from private practice or to new law or into the not-for-profit sector, or you may even be considering leaving law altogether and venturing beyond the profession entirely. I have limited places available for one-on-one career coaching with me. If this sounds like it would benefit you, please message me and we can work out how I might 
best support you to evolve into the next stage of your career. There are two things you can do today to help me spread the RTL word. The first thing I kindly ask is that you share this episode with just one person in your network who you think may benefit from Hannah's advice today. And the second thing I kindly ask is that you like, subscribe and follow me on whichever platform you are listening to this and follow my socials, Rose Tinted Law. I hope you enjoy listening to this honest conversation and it helps open your eyes to the limitless possibilities as to where your legal career may take you. Thank you.